I'll go through both ones. Give me a nod when you're done. Okay. You're playing too strong. You ready, Doug?
seated. Well, good morning. It's a joy to be here with all of you this morning, whether you're here visiting, you're up for vacation for the 4th of July weekend, or you're here with us all the time, we're, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. We're just a delight to come together and to, to worship our God together. If you are visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. If there's anything you'd like to communicate with the church, um, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out. And you can draw out those in the wooden boxes on, on the way out, on your way this morning, just a way for us to get to know you a little bit. Those wooden boxes are also where uh, tithes and offerings can go if you're inclined to give to us this morning. Obviously, if you're visiting, we don't expect you to give, but if you want to contribute to what we're doing, that's where that can go. There's also a QR code on the back of your bulletin that you can scan to give to us at the church. And we come together this morning on this 4th of July weekend. It's, it's good and it's right to celebrate and to rejoice in like, the blessings God has given us in, in living here in this country in this time. We also don't forget that, as Paul says in Philippians, that we are citizens of heaven first. Right? That though we may have flags on the side, but the cross is central. We are here first and foremost to delight and worship God, the King of Heaven, more than any nation. The fact that you've all made time on your Fourth of July weekend to to be here this morning means I think you're probably on the same page as well. So we're excited to worship with you this morning. A couple of announcements to bring to your attention, uh, primarily about VBS coming up in our church. And so to talk about that, I'm going to invite Pastor Ian, our youth pastor, to come up and tell you a little bit about that. Yeah, as Pastor Tim was saying, we are going to be having VBS, not this coming week, but the next week, starting on July 10th, is going to be in the evening, 6 to 7.30 here, um, right in this space. We're going to do it in the sanctuary. And super excited for it. If you are a just finishing 4K all the way through finishing fifth grade, you are welcome to attend. Now, I know most of you are adults and you say that I can't attend, but if you want to volunteer, you can volunteer. We have a volunteer meeting um, right after church. We'll be in the library. So we do need volunteers for this um, between working with kids or helping with crafts or whatever else. Um, we, we do need volunteers. But it's going to be a great week. We're going to be talking about wildlife in two different ways. One, we're going to be talking about awesome animals and creatures, uh, mainly Northwoods ones, but we will be talking about awesome creatures. And the other way that we're talking about it is God has given us this wildlife that we get to live and experience, and it is much, much better if we have our Creator with us. So that is what we are going to be talking about. If you want to sign up, you can sign up on our website at tlafc.org slash children's ministry. There's a um, button that you can just register there. The cost is $5 per family. Otherwise, if you want to volunteer, come and talk to me um, or come to the volunteer meeting after church. Again, it's just a joy to be together in this place that God has provided for us to worship Him together this morning. And so as we Continue in the time of worship. Would you join me in time of prayer? Father, we 
We thank you. We praise you that through your sovereign care for us, each of us is here this morning, that you've brought us each through trials and joys in life. You've brought us on different paths and different roads to be here this morning. And Father, we trust that wherever we are at in our relationship with you, you have work to do in our heart this morning. You have sin to convict us of. You have joy to point us toward. You have rough edges to smooth off. You have truths about yourself to reveal to us. So I pray for each of us gathered here that you would give us hearts that are attuned to what you have to say to us this morning. That you would do the work that only you, by the power of your Spirit, can do. To reveal yourself to us, to draw us closer to yourself. That you'd work in mighty ways this morning, God. Father, I pray, especially for people who came in this morning, maybe hurting or broken or in pain, for that you would be especially present with them this morning, that they would feel your goodness and kindness to them even in the midst of trial. Father, for those here who may be in need of healing, pray that you would work mightily to heal. Pray that you would comfort those who need comfort, that you bring peace to those who need peace. Father, above all, I I pray that as we leave here this morning, we would leave looking a little more like Jesus when we walked in this morning. And that all that we do here this morning, as we sing, as we hear your word, as we fellowship together, would it all serve to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to continue in worship this morning.
promises are true and solid forever. 
because of that, we can hope and trust and delight in you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Weeks ago, the, the U.S. Open Golf Championship was, was held at the Los Angeles Country Club in Los Angeles, California. And in the lead-up to that tournament, I heard a lot of kind of discussion about just how exclusive the Los Angeles Country Club was, or just how strict their policies were for the club's members. For example, despite being located in Los Angeles, the club had a long-standing policy to not admit any actors or celebrities. The way back in the 1940s, the actor Ray Milland tried to join the country club, but he was told that actors were not welcome, to which Milland replied, I'm not an actor. I have more than 50 films to prove it. <laughs> Another time, a member suggested that that Jimmy Roosevelt, the son of FDR, should be admitted to membership. And not only did the club reject or decide not to admit Roosevelt, but they also kicked out the member who suggested him. <laughs> and if you do happen to be offered membership, it comes with the privilege of paying a reported $250,000 initiation fee on top of $30,000 in annual dues to the club. And if that cost isn't a problem, you actually do become a member. Here are some rules that you are expected to follow. First, shorts are never allowed. You can't wear shorts. Like, I'm hot up here in pants, like in northern Wisconsin, standing still. I can't imagine golfing in Los Angeles. But no matter what, you have to wear pants, and they have to be of the tailored variety. Right? No off-the-shelf dockers for you. Shirts must be collared and tucked in at all times. Hats are never allowed inside. After 6 p.m., you have to wear a sport coat in the clubhouse if you're a man. You can never change shoes in the parking lot. <laughs> Headphones and earbuds are never allowed. Cell phones are never allowed to be used except in designated phone rooms. Posting photos or any other information about the club on social media will get you kicked out in a hurry. Just in case some technology policy slipped through the cracks, the last line in their technology portion of their handbook is this. If the use of technology is not specifically addressed in the policy, then it is not permitted at the club. Right? Cover all your bases. Right? And I share all this about the exclusivity of this club, right? because I think it highlights the kind of human tendency we have to expect members of our club or our tribe or our group to look and act a certain way. We like to add rules on top of rules to make people prove that they really belong to our group. And people who don't adhere to our rules, though they may claim to be a part of our group, we don't really count them. Right? In fact, this, this behavior is so common, there's a, there's a logical fallacy that is used to describe it. It's called the no true Scotsman fallacy. And it goes something like this. Person A says, well, no Scotsman puts sugar in, on his porridge. To which person B replies, oh, but my Uncle Agnes, he's a Scotsman and he puts sugar on his porridge. To which person A replies, ah, but no true Scotsman 
put sugar on his porridge. We all have these things. We have these tests of who is in and who is out of our clique or our tribe or our group. We have these tests of kind of purity that are often totally arbitrary. Like that person says he's a a Green Bay Packer fan, but he's never even stepped foot in Lambeau Field. He's not a true Packer fan. That person says they're a Wisconsinite, but they don't even like cheese. They're not a true Wisconsinite. That person says they're Republican, but they support some gun control measures. They're not a true Republican. Or conversely, like that person says they're a Democrat, but they think abortion's immoral. They're not a true Democrat. We have all these purity tests for who's in and who's out of our groups. And in today's passage in Philippians, we see Paul dealing with a group of people who are putting on applying one of these purity tests to what it means to be a Christian. This group is called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers in Paul's time are saying, these Gentiles who have newly become Christians, they say they're Christians, but they don't keep all the Jewish laws. They don't keep the food laws. They don't keep all the Jewish traditions. And therefore, they're not true Christians. For the Judaizers, being a true Christian meant believing in Jesus and also keeping all the Old Testament laws and Jewish traditions. And so Paul addresses these Judaizers several times throughout his letters in the, in the New Testament. He's often dealing with this problem. He saves some of his harshest words for the Judaizers. We see that in this passage as well. So this morning we're in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 16. Paul starts, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, saying, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And here's where he starts going after the Judaizers. He says, Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And that's Paul describing the Judaizers. He calls them dogs evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, and calling them dogs is especially ironic. Right? Because dog was the preferred insult for Jews toward Gentiles. He called, they like to call them dogs. But now Paul's turning it back around. And he's saying, right, it's not the Gentiles who are the dogs, it's Judaizers, you are the dogs. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. And that's a reference to their insistence upon circumcision as part of the adherence to being a Christian. But then he goes on to say in verse 3, But it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says that the mark of a a true person of God is not that the person has been physically circumcised. The true mark of person of God is that they have received what he later calls the circumcision of the heart. Remember, he said people who serve God by his spirit, people who boast in Christ Jesus, people who put no confidence in the flesh, that's the true people of God, not the people who adhere to Old Testament laws. The Judaizers, they're putting confidence in the flesh. Because they're circumcised according to Jewish law, because they keep the Old Testament law, they view themselves as superior, as the true Christians. But Paul says that's nonsense. 
And if anyone should know, it's Paul himself, because as he points out, right, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, he said that if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's saying, all those things that the Judaizers say you have to have, I was the best at them. I had everything they needed. I I kept the Old Testament law better than any of those Judaizers. He goes so far to say, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. He was... He's the Judaizer's dream. Right? He's done everything they expect, except, he says, none of that matters. In verse 7, he says, But whatever gains, whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. All those things the Judaizers value, all the adherence to the Old Testament law, all those things that Paul possessed, Paul said they're rubbish, they're trash, they're worthless. Because they are utterly opposed to Christ and the gospel. He said that I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. The two cannot coexist, Paul says. Paul wants nothing more than to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And he's willing to consider all his accomplishments, all his achievements, all his credentials trash in order that he may know Christ. And not just know Christ, but continuing on in verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that come from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Paul knows that it is not by doing any of those things the Judaizers say that he will attain the resurrection of the dead, that he will attain eternal life. It is only, he says, if he has a righteousness that comes not from the law, not from inside himself, but a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith that any of this works. That's the heart of what we believe. That's the heart of the gospel. When we When we know Christ, when we gain Christ, when we are in Christ, we have a righteousness that comes not from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that comes on the basis of faith. Through faith in Jesus, through his death on the cross, Jesus takes our sin, our our standing with God no longer depends on our own righteousness. Which is good news because I'm sure we're all very aware of times that our righteousness is not what it should have been. We're all aware of times we've 
treated others poorly, at times we've lied, at times we've been selfish or lazy. If our standing with God depended on our own righteousness, we'd all fall short. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sin, and not only took our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. A righteousness from God, God the Son, Jesus, on the basis of our faith in him. If we have faith that Jesus died for us, then we receive his righteousness. And if Paul said in verse 11, and so somehow we attain the resurrection from the dead through that faith. That is the gospel. The heartbeat of what we believe as Christians. That it is not our own righteousness, but it is the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus that makes us right with God. If you're here and you've, you've never trusted Jesus, you've never kind of embraced this idea that your standing with God depends not on your own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus, I just invite you to do that this morning. If you're trying to work to earn favor with God so you can get to heaven someday, that's not going to work. It's only by trusting Jesus and receiving his righteousness that we can have hope of eternal life. If you've never trusted that, I would just invite you to trust that. If you have questions about what that means, I'd be happy to talk to you more about that. Paul's great hope is that through his faith in Jesus, he will somehow attain the resurrection of the dead. He will attain eternal life. But he knows that until that day comes, when he dies, when he finally attains to his goal, he has work to do. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already attained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And that last sentence, that last verse, verse 16, for me the beautiful summary of what this passage is all about. And really what that the Christian life it's all about. Right? For the Judaizers and for most other religions in the world, life is all about acting in a certain way in order to attain something in the present or in the future. It's about acting a certain way now so you can get something for yourself later. But the Christian life is about living up what we have already attained. The attaining has been done. Jesus did it. It's already attained. Now, our life now is about working to live up to that. Like our life now is not about working to attain eternal life right? or working to attain some blessing from God in the present. Our life now is about living up to what has already been attained. If there's just kind of one thing you leave here this morning like ringing in your head, I hope it's this. 
That you are called to live up to what we have already attained in Christ. For the rest of our time this morning, I just want to kind of look more closely at a few verses in the passage and consider, in light of those verses, what it looks like, what it means to live up to what we've already attained. Starting in verse 3, we read this. Paul said, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We've already talked about how the Judaizers were putting confidence in the flesh by adding their own ability to adhere to the law on top of faith in Jesus as a barometer for who is a true Christian. And thankfully, we don't encounter many people who, who insist that we keep all the Old Testament laws to be a true Christian anymore. Right? Like otherwise, all those, who, all those of us who enjoy bacon would like, be in trouble. You know, so we don't have that same requirement that we adhere to all the Old Testament laws anymore. When we did our, our Sabbath series a while back, I, I tried to emphasize that we should keep the Sabbath not because it's an obligation to the Old Testament law, but because it's a good thing God has blessed us with and designed us for. We don't need to adhere to and keep the Old Testament law. It's all about Jesus. So in that way, we're not like the Judaizers anymore. We don't have the same strict code. But if we think this verse doesn't apply to us, then I think we're being a little naive. I think there are many ways where we are tempted to, like the Judaizers, put confidence in the flesh. There are ways that we have, we have purity tests of what makes someone a true Christian in our own mind. Or to think we need to do things to add to what Jesus' death did for us. But we are to be people who put no confidence, Paul says, in the flesh. And that, that shouldn't be hard. Like, I shouldn't need a lot of proof that like, my, my flesh is weak. Like, like, I don't know how many times I've like, finished a big meal, eaten too much, and said, never again. But the next time there's a plate of food in front of me, my flesh is suddenly very weak. It should not be hard to convince myself that my flesh is weak and therefore I should put no confidence in it. But we tend to do it. We tend to put confidence in the flesh. So the question then is, are there ways that we perhaps subtly, perhaps without really even thinking about it, are, are tempted to Put confidence in the flesh. To help us answer that, kind of two, maybe a little more focused, detailed questions that I think I find, that I find helpful. Right? So the first question is this. Right? Is there anything I do that I believe adds to my salvation? Is there anything I do that I think contributes to and adds to what Jesus has done for me on the cross? There's a lot of denominations, a lot of traditions that would tell you that like, without baptism, salvation is impossible. Others teach that God just wants you to be a good person. As long as you're good enough and don't do anything too terrible, then surely God will let you into heaven someday. The problem with that is they never define 
what good enough is. And so you're left with the question, how good is good enough? Have I met the standard? Has my flesh been strong enough to meet God's standard of good enough? Do you subtly think that your good deeds, your being a good person, are why you'll get into heaven someday? Is there anything you do that you believe adds to your salvation? Because Paul says that all things of the flesh, and we should put no confidence in them. Now maybe you hear that and you say, well, of course not. Like, I know salvation is by grace, through faith. It's not by works. I would never do anything to add to my salvation. Let me ask another, maybe a little more pointed question. That's this. Is there anything other people do that you think in your head, whether you say it or not, you think makes them less of a Christian than you? When we lived down in Louisville, at one point, I was under three different agreements that prevented me from drinking alcohol. The church we were members, the school I taught at, and the seminary I attended all required that we agree to not drink alcohol while we were there. There's just a prevailing sense in that culture like among Christians that, that Christians who drank alcohol were, were a lesser class of Christian, if they were Christians at all. That's, that's one example. Another one I see often is that like, a person votes differently than me. Well, then surely they can't be as good of a Christian as I am. Other examples that kind of come into my head as I prepared this. Well, that person uses language that I wouldn't use. So they can't be as good a Christian as I am. That person dresses in a way that I wouldn't dress, so they can't be as good of a Christian as I am. That person consumes media I wouldn't consume. I can't believe they would watch that show. There's no way they're as good of a Christian as I am. Maybe they're not even a Christian at all. That person wastes money that I would give to the church or to righteous causes. That person wastes time that they could be used reading the Bible or praying or, or serving the church. can't believe that guy wastes time playing pickleball. <laughs> that person makes educational choices for their kids that I wouldn't make. They must not be as good of a Christian as I am. If you have those thoughts, right, they're all reflective of confidence in the flesh. That's not to say that the language we use or the media we consume or the way we spend our time or our money or the clothing we wear, those things still matter to God. They do. But when we connect those behaviors to how good of a Christian someone is or worth whether or not they're truly a Christian, we're putting confidence in the flesh and not in Christ. A Christian's righteousness does not depend on the language they use or the media they consume. We don't depend on a righteousness of our own. But our righteousness, Paul tells us, is a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Not on the basis of our vocabulary or our wardrobe or our budget. 
So let's not be people who put confidence in the flesh. But rather let's be people who put all our confidence in Christ. Let us be fully confident that God has done everything that is required for us to be made right with God. And if that's true, then, then our primary goal in life is no longer keeping an arbitrary set of rules to make God happy or to make others happy. If that's true, if all our confidence is in Christ, then our one and only overarching goal can be what Paul says in verse 10. That I want to know Christ. That's how we live up to what we've already attained. By seeking to know Jesus. If it's true that there's nothing we can do to add to our salvation, and it's only because Jesus died in our place to forgive our sins, if that's true, then it makes sense that I would want nothing more than to know Him. Not as an obligation, not as a hoop to jump through to earn God's favor, but because it's like, I want to know the one who loved me enough that he would die for me. I want to know the one who would look at me and all my sin and all my failure and all my weakness, and he would look at me and he would say, I want to die for that person. Not because they deserve it, but because I love them. Like, I want to know him. The one who would look at me and say he's worth dying for. I want to know that person. the natural outcome of having full confidence in Christ, that we want to know Him. Not know about Him, but to know Him personally. The pastor, Matt Carter, once said, there is an eternal difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I think that's true. There are many people who know a lot about Jesus without really knowing him. Like they know all the fact of his life, they know what he said, they know what he claimed to do, but they don't know him. You know that feeling when your, your spouse or your child or your friend walks into the room and you say, hey, how's it going? And they say, good. Right? And to anyone else who overheard that interaction, they would think everything was fine. But you, because you know that, that other person intimately, you can just tell by the way they said, good, that there was something not quite right. Maybe it's in the way they were carrying themselves, maybe it's in the way they said it, but you could tell something was bothering them because you know them so well. That's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. For a stranger, no amount of Knowing facts and figures and biographical information about a person is going to help them interpret that good. It's only by knowing them deeply, personally, that you can tell there's something bothering them and how they said good. Same thing is true of Jesus. Jesus is not just a list of facts and figures and biographical information for us to memorize and to know. He is a person for us to know personally and intimately and deeply. And thankfully, He reveals Himself to us in His Word in the Bible. The Bible is not just a list of facts and figures about Jesus. 
that our means of knowing Him, of building a friendship with Him, of communing with Him. And the biggest distinction between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus is how you live your life in response to that knowledge. If your concern is merely knowing about Jesus, then you can memorize some facts and some figures, then you can go on your merry way living however you want to live. But if you want to know Christ, then your life will be changed by that relationship. Just as my priorities and desires were changed as I, I had kids. Believe it or not, there was a time in my life when I didn't know a thing about Daniel Tiger. And if not for my kids, I'd be happy to still be in that place. But then I had kids, and my desire to know them changed how I live. And now I've watched more Daniel Tiger, and I've read more Daniel Tiger books than I care to count. But it's all because I love my kids, I want to know them, and that's part of who they are. The same thing is true as we grow in our relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus will change how we live. Paul highlights this. After, after saying he wants to know Christ, Paul goes on to say, Not that I've already obtained this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In response to his desire to know Christ, Paul says that he is going to press on, he's going to strain ahead to win the prize for which God has called him. He's pressing on toward the goal. And again, it's crucial that we recognize that for Paul, this pressing on is not about earning his salvation. We already said he puts no confidence in the flesh. He puts no confidence in his own ability to earn his salvation. But Paul having full confidence in Christ for his salvation means that he can now press on to grow to be more like Jesus. Paul is pressing on to know Jesus more and to live his life in response to knowing Jesus. In verse 14 he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And like, my hope, my prayer, my wish is that we would all be able to say the same thing. That we have full confidence that Jesus saved us through our faith in his death on the cross. And now we are pressing on towards the goal. The goal, right, is the perfected, glorified, sinless state we will find ourselves in in, in heaven. But we don't, we don't just kind of sit around and wait for, for heaven to come and make us sinless. But that even now we press on toward that goal. And we won't attain sinless perfection in this life. 
but we strive for it. We press on toward it, confident that one day God will finish that work in us. We strive, Paul says, to live up to what we've already attained. We've already attained eternal life by having Jesus' righteousness given to us. And now we, now we live this life. We live our day-to-day lives here and now seeking to live up to what Jesus has done for us. We press on towards the goal. We press on. We strain ahead towards living the life that we're called to live as followers of Jesus. We seek to grow in obedience to Christ. One kind of tangible way to do that for, for those who haven't right, is by being baptized. Right? As we said earlier, there's, there's nothing about baptism that adds to your salvation. Right? If you have been baptized, it should not be something that gives you confidence that confidence in the flesh that you are more saved. But being baptized is an act of obedience. It is a, a declaration and a way of demonstrating to the world and to your brothers and sisters in Christ that, that you belong to Jesus, that you want to know Jesus, that you believe that through Jesus your old life was buried, your sins were washed away, and now your life is all about pressing on toward the goal. Pressing on toward the goal means trying to become more like Jesus. And Jesus himself submitted to baptism. Not because he needed to have his own sins washed away, but to be a model for us. I just encourage you, if you've never been baptized, but you call yourself a follower of Jesus, to, to do so. We're planning here on August 20th, following the service, we'll meet here for the regular service, but then Following the service on August 20th, we will go down to Maple Lake and we will baptize anyone who's interested and we will celebrate together the baptism. If you're interested in that, I encourage you to reach out to me, whether you email me or you call me or you talk to me after the service. And we can talk about more about what that would look like, what all that entails. We'd love to lead you in that next step of obedience to Christ. Other ways that we can press on towards the goal. That we, first and foremost, we seek to know Christ right? through reading the Bible, through prayer with Him, through communing. And we know Christ. We grow in our knowledge of Him. We know we grow in our love of Him. We seek to know Him. And as we get to know Him better and better, we press on towards becoming like Him. We seek to be humble like Jesus was humble. We seek to be loving like Jesus was loving and gracious like Jesus was gracious. I just encourage you, each of you here, if you leave here, leave here with this in mind that you're pressing on toward the goal of becoming more like Jesus. As you interact with others, as you live your life, as you go to work next week, is whatever it is, to press on to being more like Jesus. Live like Him. Love like Him. Show grace like Him.
would we all press on toward the goal and live up to what we've already obtained. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do not have to rely on our own effort, our own flesh to earn your favor. Father, we confess that we are sinful, and if it depended on us, we would always fall short of your standard. So, Father, we praise you, we thank you that you sent Jesus to live among us, to be like us in every way, yet be without sin, so that he could go to the cross, he could die in our place, he could take our sin upon himself and give us his righteousness. so that we can have a righteousness from you that's obtained through faith. Father, I pray that we go from here, that you would help us to live up to all that you've already done for us in Jesus. You would help us to press on towards the goal. You'd help us to strive towards becoming more like Jesus. Father, would you show us in each one of our lives where we need to grow, where we need to mature, where we need to become more like Christ. Would you help us to Repent of our sins. Would you help us to work at putting to death the sin in our lives so that we can become more like Jesus? That we live lives that are more and more like Jesus' life. Would, would our lives serve to proclaim to the watching world the glory of what you've done for us in Jesus. Would we freely and boldly tell others why all our confidence is in Christ through our lives and through our testimony would you bring new people to yourself, new people who through faith in Christ receive righteousness from you who desire to know Christ. So Father, we go from here. We go desiring to know Jesus. And as we know Jesus more and more, would that relationship with him transform our lives to live for your glory? Pray to in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you after following the service to come downstairs. We have coffee and snack down there, fellowship together downstairs. But again, we're just thankful that you.
made time this morning to be with us, to worship with us. For that this morning with a blessing to you. And as you go from here, would you go seeking to live up to what you've already attained? You are dismissed.
Thank you.